Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Tonight, however, we're here to talk about cheese. Uh, Gordon Egger drove all the way down from San Francisco to be with us today, so uh, let's give him a warm welcome. He is uh, the cheesemonger at Rainbow Grocery Cooperative in San Francisco uh, and has been for 15 years. He's been a judge at cheese competitions, a board member for the California Artisan Cheese Guild, and since 2002 has blogged at gordonzola.net. Uh, surrounded by his vast and decaying collection of zines and obscure punk seven inches, he lives in San Francisco with his girlfriend and their imaginary white miniature schnauzer. Uh, I will let him, he's the expert, I'll let him tell you all about the cheese and his new book, Cheesemonger. Please welcome Gordon Egger. Hey. Uh, my schnauzer is now not imaginary anymore, actually. It's actually a real, it became real somehow, but uh, it's true. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, yeah, well, as you've noticed, there's plenty of cheese up here, and I don't want to take any home, so please feel free to eat as much as you want. Um, I, um, I was telling people I had signs for the cheese to tell you what it was, but I, those are the one thing I left in San Francisco. So um, I'll tell you what the cheese is first before we get into kind of bookish stuff. Um, and um, well, first let me say too, thanks for coming. Um, I uh, I wanted to do a reading in LA. I had actually never been to this bookstore before, but this is a great bookstore. I'm really excited to be here. Um, and uh, yeah, let's go. The um, cheese is here. Um, you know, what I when I've been doing readings, I've been trying to bring um, cheese to the events because you know it's a book on cheese. You might as well have cheese there, right? Um, it seems to make people come too. <laughs> um, and uh, you know what I get is always kind of. Uh, a little bit um, uh, up to random chance. Uh, there was a trade show in town in San Francisco uh, this week, so I got these two really good uh, Australian cheeses here, which I wouldn't have gotten otherwise because they would have been way too expensive to bring to you guys, no offense. Um, but uh, there's uh, the Roaring Forties Blue on the far left, and then the uh, next cheese in is called Red Square. Um, they're both from Tasmania, actually. And um, the, uh, the blue, um, kind of self-explanatory, um, the red square is a washed rind cheese, you know, so it's got that stinkiness to it, um, but it's not a very strong cheese. Um, and I, I really like this. It's perfectly ripe, too. That was totally a random chance that that was perfectly ripe, but, but we lucked out. Um, next to that is um, <clears throat> a cheese that's called, uh, it's called, well, the company's name is Spring Hill, but sometimes they go by Petaluma Creamery, and you never know which they're going to call themselves in a given day. Um, but uh, the, it's a dry jack with, um, with made from goat milk with peppercorns in it. Um, <clears throat> dry jack is a really traditional California cheese. Um, they started making it mostly in you know, Northern California um, as a substitute for Parmesan when it wasn't available during the war. Um, so it, it's been making it, different families have been making it, different cheesemakers have been making it for years, and it's, it's really great. Nobody's been making it with goat milk until recently, and um, I was actually just, um, I hate saying this because it, it gives the wrong impression, but I was a judge the other week at uh, the Sonoma Harvest Festival, and, um, and it was only Sonoma County cheeses that were, uh, Sonoma County is the, like, two counties up from San Francisco. Um, it was only Sonoma County cheeses were eligible, and it was, um, uh, you know, so there was, like, tw only 25 cheeses, but that just won best of show, so I thought I'd bring some of that. 
Um, the uh, the one that that is kind of nondescript in the middle next the other the other white cheese there is a is a sage cheddar from Vermont. Um, that's another remnant from the food show too. So, <laughs> um, and then the the one on the far. Your far right um, is uh, is actually a Winchester Gouda. Winchester is a cheesemaker um, that's actually your most local cheesemaker down here. Uh, been made since the 50s. Um, uh, this Dutch guy named Jules Wesselink um, moved here in the 50s and was making Goudas. He uh, he actually died last year, but it's being carried on by different people. And um, they make really really nice cheese. And that's the the super aged Gouda. So that's really nice and sweet and sharp and all that. But please eat a lot of cheese because I don't want to take it home. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. Well, well, they, they, they worked it out. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a couple things for you. Um, first, I'm going to say uh, just how I ended up writing this book, um, which was that, uh, as, as was mentioned in my bio, um, you know, I was... I was blogging, actually not before I had my own domain, I was on a different blogging site. And um, it was just kind of a, a random, you know, whatever I was thinking at the moment, kind of typical blog thing. But I noticed that whenever I wrote about cheese, I would get a lot of comments. Like people were really interested in the cheese parts. And um, so I started thinking, huh, well, well, actually the first thing I did was like, I said, well, if you have any cheese questions, just ask. And then I had like, 50 responses in a couple hours and then I just killed that completely and disappeared it because I knew I didn't have time to answer all that. Um, so when I started thinking ab about, what I started thinking about was the ability to have a longer conversation about cheese and the politics of cheese and um, the way cheese is sold um, the, uh, and just how I got into working with cheese. Um, and that was a much longer conversation than I could have either in that kind of format on the internet or, um, or over the counter where I work. Um, oddly, the most, the most asked question I've gotten in all these readings is people are like, oh, well, what do you do now? And it's like, yeah, I was working yesterday. I was, I was receiving cheese yesterday. Um, I, and I've never left my job. I'm still doing the same thing. I'm, I buy and sell cheese at Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco. Um, so I'm going to um, read a first section here, here which is... Um, this is a section about, now in the book, just to give you a little further overview here, um, you know, the book is a mix of memoir, of cheese information, and food politics. So this is a section that's, that's kind of more about cheese. Um, and I have a lot of sections that treat cheese nicely and talk about how great different cheeses are, but those are really, really boring sections to read out loud. The, the, the audience does not like them. They're really boring. It's just like, oh, great, you had a great cheese experience. You know, do you have that cheese here? No. You know, so, um, so I'm going to read about the first time that, um, that I bought a, a, a certain cheese for the store. And it, it, this was back uh, about 15 years ago, so I really didn't have much information. It was kind of learning to, to, to buy cheese as I went. And, um, and this is kind of what happens in that kind of situation. And th this cheese style, just to... Say so it's a Telegio that I'm going to be talking about, but it's a sim similar style to that uh, washed rind cheese out there, the Red Square. So you can get, kind of get a, a visual. Um, <clears throat> the bigger problem was not knowing what a cheese was supposed to taste like. I ordered my first Telegio because a customer had requested it. Telegio at its best can be a little intimidating to an uninitiated cheese eater. While not a strong cheese, it's stinky and often slimy. 
It's a washed rind cheese, and the paper sticks to it to such an extent that my coworker, who goes by the cheese name Anarcheso, <laughs> refers to the process of removing the wrapper as skinning the zombie. Before we sold a lot of cheese, our options were limited. We couldn't order from every distributor in the area as we do today because we simply couldn't buy enough to make their minimum orders. In the case of Telegio, I figured, hey, Italian-American company, they should do okay with the cheese of their people. But let's just say I found out the hard way that companies have their strengths. In retrospect, this cheese was the nastiest Telegio I've ever seen. At the time, I had no way of knowing since it was also my first. Too old Telegio can present in different ways. Usually it's dried out and less smelly than usual, desiccated, and has too big an inedible rind to edible inside ratio. But not this one. Sometimes the bacteria that ripen the cheese go crazy, liquefying and intensifying the cheese. That's what I got from my first Telegio, an oozy puddle of nasty pink stink. I didn't know what to do. I opened the box gently because cheese was dripping out the seams. I carefully pulled back the paper wrapping and looked at what might, at one time, have been a nice cheese. The pink rind with green mold in the grooves was cracked into so many small pieces that it no longer held together. Bits of rind floated on top of the oozy cheese so that it looked like a color-coded aerial shot of a flood disaster. Flies began swarming around, and it was still the dead of winter. I looked at the cheese. I pondered the cheese. I meditated on the cheese. I phoned the distributor and described the mess they had sold me. Their response, which I soon realized would be, always be the response, was, oh, it's fine. <laughs> they made suggestions, just wrap it, sample it out, cup it without the rind and sell it as Telegio cream. <laughs> to my shame, I considered all this. I worked up the nerve to taste the Telegio. I had spent too long on the phone and the cheese was flattening out. More cheese ooze dripped from the box seams onto the counter. I had read in books about what Telegio, often called the Italian brie, was supposed to be like. Rich and creamy, but also nutty. Smelly, but also mild and milky. The cheese in front of me was smelly, that was for sure. I doubted this one would be mild, especially to my palate, which only a couple of months before thought smoked gouda was a stretch. I was scared. Today I certainly would have sent the cheese back within a few seconds of looking at it, but exploration is an important part of the educational experience. That day, I prodded it with a knife. The cheese gave but bounced back into shape. I scraped off a, uh, uh, <clears throat> I scraped off a bit of the yellowy paste, brought it up to my nose, and smelled it. That didn't tell me anything. I had been warned that Telegio was supposed to smell, but there's a wide range of possibilities contained within the word smell. It smelled all right. I scooped a blob off with my finger and smelled it again. I almost brought it to my lips. Once, twice, okay, this time for real. When the cheese hit my tongue, I immediately knew something was wrong. Sweetness was the first thing I tasted, but not a good sweet. Sweet like blood, death, putrefaction. I've never pulled over my car on the side of the highway and tasted an animal I saw riding on the side of the road, but this is what I imagined it would taste like. After the flavor of sweet rot came bitterness. I'm one of those folks who can taste bitterness fairly easily, and this has helped me tremendously in my cheese buying. I would go so far as to say I can sense when a cheese is going bad before most of my other coworkers. This was not a gift that paid off when I tasted this Telegio. It wasn't a snappy little bite that awakens the taste buds. It was an ice pick to the tongue. I felt like a cheesemonger Trotsky. My introduction to Telegio 
was an important moment in my development as a cheesemonger, though I didn't realize this as I spat the cheese into the garbage and searched for something benign to take the awful taste out of my mouth. I had returned cheese for obvious defects, but this is the first time I returned a product against a distributor's wishes because it just wasn't right. That's it for my first section. <laughs> uh, hmm. So how are you guys doing? I'm going to take a drink, so talk amongst yourself for a sec. Mm. The first time, the first reading I ever did, actually, the distributor sold me that cheese was in the audience wow. with his kids who are also in the business, and and he was just like totally, like in denial that it was him that oh. he, that did it, but his kids all knew that it was him because it was the Telegio cream part that really really did it. Um, I'm going to read a kind of different section next. Um, the um, there was uh, <coughs> excuse me. sorry, I've been fighting a cold all week. <laughs> A lot of coughing today. Nah, I'm okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Rainbow Grocery, where I work, is the biggest worker cooperative retail store in the country. Um, there's about 240 worker owners there. And as opposed to a consumer co-op, um, it's all run by the workers. Um, and the uh, how I got into cheese was um, interesting. Because, you know, basically, I had gotten into punk rock in my teens and late teens, gotten into um, be, being a political activist, and then sometime in the early 20s I had to kind of figure out what I was going to do to make a living. Um, and the, uh, I was attracted to work at Rainbow Grocery because of its structure, because it was unique, because it's this kind of um, really large-scale experiment in like workplace democracy, and that's what attracted me at first. And I really didn't have any particular love. I didn't have any particular hate, but I didn't have a particular love for the cheese. That was just where the job opening was. Um, but the, um, you know, that, I'm going to read a little section about, um, ah, here it is. Found it. Um, I'm going to read a little section about um, kind of what punk rock meant to me and why that like kind of led that direction. It's funny, on the car ride on the way up here, I was, you know, because I drove up or I drove down this morning, um, you know, I was listening to um, this band called J Church, who you don't need to have known about. But um, this uh, guy, Lance, was almost exactly my age, and he died about three years ago, almost three years ago today, I mean, well, a couple weeks from now. And um, I was listening to this, and I was just like really like, uh, thinking about all this again, because this is the section that I was, I wish Lance was alive to have read, because um, it's really, uh, I think, encapsulates some of, um, of like why that was important to us at the time. So um, the, uh, <clears throat> this is from the chapter um, Cheese Culture, Punk Subculture, and Reagan Cheese. <laughs> when I told my political friends that I attended a workshop titled Working with Indigenous Cultures at the 2003 American Cheese Society Conference, they were impressed. They were surprised that a conference for such a Eurocentric food would devote time to the issues of native peoples. Some even asked about attending. I almost didn't have the heart to tell them that wasn't what the organizers meant. To the consuming pu public, culture is the least understood ingredient of cheese. Most cheeses use a bacterial culture that is added to the milk in order to produce chemical reactions that affect the finished cheese in some desirable way. Cheese cultures affect everything. Of course, their use is intertwined with all the other ingredients and processes, but they are the start of the chemical reactions that make the cheese magic happen. 
They determine the acidity level of the milk, the way the milk coagulates, the texture of the curds, and therefore the cheese, the taste, the moisture level, and the way the cheese ages. In the old days, dairies made their own cultures by leaving out buckets of milk to spoil and then adding them back in when making cheese. As you can imagine, this process was risky and unstable. If some microscopic critter got into the mix, the starter could transform or be killed off entirely. While this process lent itself to the creation of unique flavors, cheesemakers risked wasting milk and worse yet, the production of bad cheese and possible financial hardship. The tradition of homemade, cheese, homemade culture disappeared for most cheesemakers in this country with the advent of commercial culture houses that could create and sell consistent starters. For many years in the United States though, all you could buy were the basic cultures, cheddar, Swiss, or Parmesan. This lack of diversity, of course, homogenized the taste of US-made cheese while lessening the chance of financial ruin for the cheesemakers. However, many cheesemakers these days are experimenting with making their own cultures as a way to create distinctive yet reliable cheeses. But is culture reliable? Beyond the bacterial cultures that go into forming the actual cheese, there are so many cultures and subcultures involved in the cheesemaking process. Farmers, hippies, dairymen, foodies, I've lived in Francers, <laughs> corporate sales reps, family businesses, and cheese punks, just to name a few. Sometimes they clash, sometimes they sustain each other, sometimes they're symbiotic, sometimes parasitic. There's so many subcultures and microcultures I could use to describe myself, but I suppose I should set the groundwork with the overarching ones, even if they're obvious. I never thought of myself as particularly American until I left the country for the first time in my mid-twenties, but then I found it undeniable. I don't mean that I discovered my USA, USA identity. I tend to be un-American un in a HUAC kind of way, but I've lived my entire life in the United States, and it's marked me in, both, in ways both good and bad. Because my family moved to the Bay Area when I was still very young, and because I'm the youngest child, I consider myself the only real Californian in my family. Sorry, Sue. My sister's here tonight. <laughs> Which is probably why I'm more touchy-feely and lefty. California's rich in subcultures, and I ran with a few. In high school, I hung out with some of the jocks, the writers, the future queers, the politicos, and the punks. I wasn't the only one who overlapped, mind you, but in the Reagan years, standing against the cultural death march to the right was the most important way I defined myself. Reagan was a cultural revolutionary above all else. There was no mistaking this if you were growing up at the time. Sure, there were specific policies he wanted to enact, certain unions he wanted to bust, certain people he wanted to bomb, but his real power came from getting Americans to feel good about their greed and power again. All around, people were seeing a kindly old man speak friendly common sense. Yet many of us saw a horrible monster who wanted to push back every positive political gain made in our short lifetimes and then kill us in World War III. We tried to fight this by creating our own culture. We love not only the music, but being banded together, banded together in the punk community. Reagan led a right-wing offensive whose goal was to make, among other things, respect for authority fashionable again. Many of us in the punk scene became politicized in that era in the face of a mass movement going in the other direction. This, of course, directly affected the formation of our culture. Through Rock Against Reagan, War Chess Tours, and the anti-nuke movement, we became very good at loudly and flamboyantly saying no. Going to punk shows was kind of like our 4-H club. Instead of going to FFA, Future Farmers of America meetings, and doing agricultural projects, the punk rockers listened to JFA, Jody Foster's Army, and protested in the streets. And besides the growth of the punk scene, 
What was one of the other things the era was famous for? The thing that would eventually, in an indirect way, lead me to a life of dairy work, Reagan cheese. So. There's more, but that's all I'm going to read from that section. <laughs> um, oh, that's yeah, rock, rock. Woo. <laughs> um, you know, you're not supposed to uh, <clears throat> complain about bad reviews as a writer. I, I was taught this. Um, but so I'm going to complain about some good reviews. This is a little, this is a little bonus, like so you, the um, the funniest thing about um, Amazon.com, right? And I know we're I know we're in a bookstore here, which is where I buy my books, not this one, but in a bookstore. But um, but going and reading the reviews is hilarious, right? Um, and I'm too sensitive, so I'm not allowed to read my negative reviews. That's the rule in my house. But I, I read the five star reviews, like you know, right? And um. But you'd be surprised what the five-star reviews say, right? And um, so um, I've, got a, I've got a couple of um, little excerpts from there to keep you from having to go and read all of them yourself. The first one is really funny because it just makes fun of my having two first names. But I, I only really made a big deal about that when my parents were there because that was more fun that way. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the, the, the <clears throat> again, five-star reviews. It's an example. I can't remember who it is. Hopefully they're not in the audience tonight. Um, <clears throat> Even after reading the book, the title still mystifies me. The word monger conjures up really negative feelings for me. So. It's a cry for help on the internet. There's many cries for help on the internet, but... <laughs> the one that's more appropriate for the section I just read, um, <clears throat> five-star review, I'm going to remind every five-star review. I feel it necessary to mention the one downside of the book, the political naivete of the author. Before you throw it against the wall, when you come across his many outbursts, generally prefaced with what seems to be his favorite word, elitist, <laughs> just consider his age <laughs> I think, well, and what he must have experienced growing up as a teenager in San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Five-star review, right? And uh, I didn't grow up in San Francisco either, and it's very clear in the book that I didn't, but, you know. <laughs> but um, it's funny, I actually went back, you know, because you can do the word search on your document, and I was like, how many times is elitist in that book? I mean, I don't know, maybe I did put it in like 30 or 40 times. I went back and looked, you know, it's a 250 roughly page book. Five times I used the word elitist, five times. One per 50 pages, which it doesn't seem like enough to me, but, you know. <laughs> Um, the, the other one that I thought was really funny, since I'm in L.A., I'll bring this one up. Um, and I'm very grateful to, for the L.A. Times for uh, um, mentioning my book. It wasn't really a review, but it was a, it was a mention of the book. But they referred to, well, <clears throat> they referred to my midlife crisis in becoming a cheesemonger. I became a cheesemonger at age 26, so I had a very early midlife crisis. <laughs> That's all for the supplemental part of the, the event. <laughs> I have one other little section to read for you today, um, which is, um, this is about working customer service um, and about that thing you have when you're working behind a counter and you're trying to figure out what somebody's actually asking you. And I'm, not, and I'm not even blaming, well, in this, this reading I am blaming, but in general I'm not blaming. I mean, in general you don't necessarily share the same words or the same language for things that you're looking for. So, you know, it's part of being someone who works retail, someone who sells cheese, and figuring out what's going on. Um, <clears throat> so you have to guess sometimes, and this is about guessing wrong. So... <clears throat> We have to start somewhere, and guessing is a part of the job for anyone working retail. But the wrong guess 
can lead to a loss of credibility in the eyes of some people who take these things too seriously. One unseasonably warm and sunny San Francisco day, a heterosexual couple walked up to the counter. We need a picnic, Bree, the man said. It was clear from his tone that he was going to do the talking. Now, when I hear picnic, Bree, I think, similar to the phrase picnic wine, of something pleasant but not challenging. This looked to me like a date, so I further assumed nothing too stinky, because no matter how stinky and sweaty people are planning on getting later in the privacy of their own homes, many daters are smell-phobic. I recommended the Fromage Daffinois, a factory-made French soft-ripened cheese that's fatty and oozy, but also mild and inoffensive. It's a cheese with no story or pedigree. I buy it myself for large parties at my house because, like fly strips around dairy cows, the Daffinois draws the casual cheese eater at parties away from the expensive stuff. <laughs> it was the wrong guess. One of the many cheese books I own is the Specialty Cheese Shop Manual. Published in 1981 to encourage people to open cheese stores and increase business for Gorm Eco Imports, the publisher, it actually has many helpful tips. Unfortunately, it also contains some who the hell wrote this gems, like the majority, the, <clears throat> the major customers of specialty cheese shops are the higher educated, more affluent, and better traveled members of the community. In short, the leaders. <laughs> now, I don't attach status to cheese eaters, but some snob culture folks clearly do. The picnic brie customer flinched as if I had slapped him. Moreover, it was as if I had taken the cheese out of the case, unwrapped it, pissed on it, and then tried to sell it to him. <laughs> Clearly, he was insulted that I offered him a factory-made cheese instead of a handmade one. No, I think we'll go with the breed of mo he said. He stretched, his, he stretched out the words with disdain. Clearly, I had not recognized him as a community leader. <laughs> I questioned his status in front of his date, no less. He grabbed the cheese and walked away. The punchline is that while he was showing me and his date his sophistication level, he was actually wrong. There is no legal breedamo sold in this country, despite the fact that many stores still sell it under this name. He was buying a fromage de mo, a handmade version uh, made for the U.S. market by the same company as breedamo, but with pasteurized milk, and therefore given a different name by the company, which still finds it important to differentiate between traditional and non-traditional methods. I didn't point this out, however. I just let him walk away. That's, that's all the reading I have for you today. Because there's also lots of cheese here, but I'm happy to answer questions. Um, if you have questions, cheese questions or book questions. What's the best-selling cheese? <laughs> well, every store's different. Our, our best-selling cheese, well, what we sell the most of is just cheap Monterey Jack. What, we sell, what, what brings in the most money is Parmigiano-Reggiano, my Italian Parmesan. That very expensive? No, but it, it's like it's about. We sell it for about fifteen dollars a pound. Um, oh. Every store is different, but um, but yeah, just it's uh, it's more. You know, the Jack we sell for three dollars a pound, so mm -hmm. obviously works like that. No question. <laughs> yes, my lactose intolerant friend. Well, I'm not anymore because I stopped eating sugar. But anyway, <laughs> um, do, do you ever get heckled at Rainbow for selling um, an animal product? You know, we're always on the lookout for vegan sabotage at the store, for sure. Um, you, know, it, you know, it's hard to tell the, the difference between vegan sabotage and what children do. 
naturally. So it's um, it's it's hard to tell. Like at one point, we were noticing that people kept somebody kept sticking like toothpicks in the the Roquefort, and this was like the expensive Roquefort. We have two Roqueforts. We have like a cheaper Roquefort and the one that's like you know pushing forty dollars a pound. And this kept having like toothpicks stuck in it. So of course we got to throw out the cheese because you know were those toothpicks from the sample table? Who knows, right? You know. So we're like vegan sabotage. But um, and then I and I wish I had a copy of this. I would read it. But um, I tracked down this one. We had had all these, we'd kept finding, every month or so, we'd find the cheese, like, chewed up. It had, like, like, bite marks in it, but it wasn't eaten. It was, like, it was, like, chewed up and spit out. Like, but, but the, but they had, it was, like, human. And there we, you know, because if you work in cheese, you can tell the difference between rodent and human bites. And, um, and, you know, the, the, you know, there's, there's these bite marks in it. We're, like, who the hell is doing this? We're, like, it doesn't really seem like vegan sabotage, because, like, why would they, but, but they didn't eat it. They like spit it out, so maybe it was, you know. And we're trying to think. Of it. Then I found it was a little girl, and I found I found her. So. <laughs> took me years. I found it. But um, but yes, we are in some ways the more most controversial part of our store because we don't actually um, we don't sell meat in our store. Um, we're not vegetarian. We have cheese with rennet in it. We have other assorted little things that have uh, you know animal products from dead animals. But the um, but yeah, we're the most controversial part in the store. People kind of leave us alone because we have a little too much. Um, we're all big in cheese, and we're all kind of big people. I think <laughs> vegans are smaller. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Other questions? <laughs> Please. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I didn't, uh, you know, my knowledge on that, it doesn't really, the, I don't know if everybody could hear that. The question was about what did I learn about bacterial cultures and the cheese making process. I, I learned in a general sense, not in a real specific sense. Um, there's a few different issues here. I mean, there are certain cultures you use for certain cheeses, but these days, more and more, especially. Um, in the in the rise of like the American produced like f you know fancy cheeses, people are getting um, a lot of custom made cultures made for them by these culture houses that exist. So it's like those are actually on proprietary information. So um, you know how they're made and all that. Um, you know, in terms of like blues and that kind of stuff. I mean, I have a working knowledge. I wouldn't say I have a great knowledge of that. It it doesn't really um, come up much. As a, you're the first person to ever ask me that question, in fact. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the average customer isn't going to ask that. And I do, I do have an interest that brings me beyond what the average customer is going to ask, but that's something that, um, that I've never... I've, I've gone to workshops on it, but not enough to, like, have a great sense of it. Sorry, we need a scientist for that one. <laughs> I have two questions. Oh, God. Can I ask them both? Yes, please. Okay. First, uh, this is my brother-in-law, everybody. <laughs> What's the greatest disaster that's ever happened at the Rainbow Market Boy since you've been there? And my second question is, what's your follow-up book going to be? I'll, I'll, I'll answer the second one first, which is I can't tell you. Okay. <laughs> I'm working on a proposal right now, but it's shh. Um, the worst disaster, you mean like a cheese? Well, you know, the worst... Maybe a cheese disaster or not. Yeah, yeah, at the old store. This goes back... This goes back 14 and a half years when we shared a cooler with um, uh, like the vitamin section. And um, there, we package, you know, in our kind of, you know, supplements, vitamin section, we package 
bulk like um, oh God, like chlorophyll and other things like that. And the whole bag of chlorophyll, like somehow, because the coolers have fans in them, this was kept in the cooler. The cooler has fans, so somehow the bag got open and went all over everything. And you know, we do mostly cut and wrapped cheese, so it got in to the cracks and crevices of every piece of wrapped cheese. So there was a lot of free cheese. We couldn't really sell it, but there was also nothing wrong with it. It was just chlorophyll. But there was a, workers had a lot of free cheese that that week. But it was all green. I mean, just in the little cracks, like not all of it, but I don't know. I'm probably not describing it very well. Sorry. <laughs> if I'd known, I would have taken a picture at the time. If I'd known that 14 years later, I'd be discussing this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's the worst thing that ever happened. You drop cheese sometimes, but you know, that's, that's life. <laughs> Other questions? Oh, come on. You must have, a, you just guys, okay, please. So when you started working there, what was your favorite cheese and Well, you know, the, my favorite cheese when I started was probably like smoked Gouda, or like, or like, you know, Jack, you know, something like that. I mean, and I'm not mocking it. I mean, I was just like what I liked, you know. Um, they're, they're actually, I, I, this is the section I didn't read that I used to read, which is about like how I came to like learn to love the cheese. But, um, but like I said, you know, people only want to hear the, people want to hear the negative cheese stories when I read them. But, um, but I, the first time I tried a piece of um, oh, the uh, one day, I, my distributor, the same one who sold me that bad Telegio, actually called me up and was like, "We got all these really old Gruyères in, um, and we don't, you know, we didn't mean to order them. Blah blah. Will you take them off our hands? They're really cheap." So I was like, "Sure." You know, I'd never had a Gruyère that was beyond like a like a one you get at Safeway, which is like a three month one, which are really um, cheap. I mean, they're not. They, they really don't reflect what Gruyere should be. They're sold very young. They're kind of like the ones that they don't think are going to age well. So they sell them off really young. So the first time I had, I got this cheese. This is the short version of the story. Got the cheese, tasted it, and I was just like amazed. I was like, I had no idea that cheese could taste like that. It was about, it was a one-year-old Gruyere. It was, um, it was, it was very dry. I mean, different, the, between the, French kind of Comte makers, which is the same recipe basically as Gruyere and the Swiss. This is um, a more firm cheese, a more strong cheese. It was, um, it was really, um, it was really an eye opener because I had no idea that all these different flavors could be in a, a piece of cheese and it not being too strong. Like I thought cheese was either like mild or too strong for me, whereas this had like a little bit of strength, but it had like sweetness, fruitiness, nuttiness, some pungency to it, but not too much. You know, a saltiness that I liked, like even a little sharpness. I mean, it was just like an amazing revelation. And then I was like, huh, I think there's a lot to learn in this, like cheese world. And then, you know, over the last, um, you know, 16 years now that I've been doing it. The um, what's really been changing is how many great American cheeses there are out out there to try. And just I was I was just um, at the American Cheese Society conference in Seattle two weeks ago, and um, you know, there was 1,438 entries for the cheese competition this year. And that's these are all like made in U.S., Canada, or Mexico. And um, and it was just it was incredible the level. Um, just from from when I started going to the cheese conferences ten years ago to now is just incredible difference. So, does that answer your question? Okay. What's the most expensive cheese? Uh, well, you know, there are there are cheeses that are too expensive that we don't sell. But um, but you know, there's some cheeses out there that people have been selling for fifty bucks a pound. That kind of stuff depends where you go and all that. The most expensive thing we sell right now is probably. Um, 
oh, what is it? <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's probably that 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 Roquefort actually, because it's a real it's a real hard to get extra aged Roquefort that we get. And like I said, we have a cheap one and we have an expensive one, but the, the push is forty dollars a pound. That's about our limit. We're a, you know we're a grocery store. We're not just a specialty cheese shop, so we can't really go beyond that. We can't do much of that either. So. What makes them expensive? Age or? A lot of different factors. The um, the the age sometimes, the care and handling that's involved, the, um, the you know, transportation costs, you know, if it's from Europe, you've got to factor in all the costs, um, the euro versus the dollar, all those kind of things. But, um, but if you spend a day with a cheesemaker, you know, it's, it really opens up your eyes to how cheap most cheese is by comparison. The amount of work that goes into, like, making cheese, and especially aged cheese, is just an incredible thing, you know. Any other questions? I have visited a lot of cheesemakers. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't even tell you. Um, I think probably thirty-five or forty in the U.S. Um, and then another ten or twelve in France. Um, Yeah, they give you like this whole. It depends on the place. Some place it's really, you know, um, I want to say cheesy. Some places it's really like, you know, set up for like tourists, and you don't actually get any real information. Other places you go in and you just make cheese with them, or you watch them make cheese, and you get to see every step of the process. It's really most places are pretty much an open book if you're a professional. The, um, the, you know, it, it isn't like you could just walk in there and be like, give me a tour, you know. But if, especially if you set it up in advance, like I was lucky enough to get this tour of France where we did. Um, I was there for six days, and we went to like I think 10 different cheese places we just kept moving constantly we never stayed in the same place twice and just you know went all the way around the country in, in five days basically and then flew out and um and that was like um it's an amazing thing when you go to say Roquefort in France I mean the town of Roquefort and you um you know, we went on this tour of the caves, and then we went upstairs to the house where the person lives, because that's how you become a Roquefort cheese maker. You live above a cave, you know, or you don't, but you're, you know, seven generations back, someone did. Um, and, you know, we went up there, and we were, you know, after this whole tour, we went upstairs, and we were, like, drinking champagne to celebrate, like, the third birthday of, like, the seventh generation cheese maker who was going to become, you know, the, you know, it's just like, it was a really amazing thing that, you, you, that, you know, for a lot of reasons you don't see in the U.S. in the same way. So, um, enough about my trips. <laughs> no, but, I, you know, I, I always tack on a cheese vacation whenever I go somewhere. I mean, I, you know, pretty much everywhere in the country, they make cheese, so if I'm going to be somewhere for some reason anyway, I'll be like, oh, hey, you know, I, I work at this place, you know, can I come and, and, and tour your cheese-making facilities? And most of the time, people are really, really enthusiastic about that. Any other questions? Um, yeah, we don't get much. Um, I mean, there's there's mostly, you know, we had some Tibetan yak cheese for a while that was made by, um, it was like a non-profit like thing that was trying to raise money for like Tibetans. And um, and so they were, they brought in these Italian cheese makers and were teaching them how to make cheese. And um, we got some of that, but I, to be honest, it wasn't the yak that was the problem. It was the, it was just not really great cheese, unfortunately. It was green, too. It was really interesting. I mean, the color, because all the milks are different colors. You know, if you look at the cheese, you know, like, like 
and they'll often look different by the kind of milk they are, but yak milk, you know, who knew? It was going to be baked green cheese. So, but, um, but other than that, um, I mean, most other countries don't have the tradition of, of aging cheese in the same way. Um, so most, if the cheese is fresh and it's made in another country, there's no way to there's no way to import it really and keep it in the same way. People make versions here. I mean, you know, stuff like Lebna or something like that. You know, but people make you know make it here because it's too um, fresh to travel all that way. Does that make sense? All right. Anything? We, we had a lot of cheese to eat over here. <laughs> so and um and I don't want to take any of this cheese home. So you should come here and eat cheese. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for coming. <laughs>